Good morning. I'm glad that you're here today, and I'm really glad to be in this place with you. Um, Think for a moment with me about the word life change. It's actually not a word. It's more of a phrase. Um, Let me start again. Think for a moment with me about the phrase life change. When has that happened for you? What brought it on? You see, there are things in life that happen to us and around us, and they don't just change our circumstances, they actually change the core of who we are. Um, One of those things um, is getting married. Um, That changes a person. Uh, You go to sleep one day um, as a single person, and the next day, all of a sudden, you um, start waking up in a co-ed sleepover, and it's not wrong. Um, It's it's life-changing. It changes who you are. There's... It's the, it's God joining two things together, um, two becoming one. Um, I can think of, you know, a few things in my life that have been as uh, earth-shattering as the idea of marriage, and that's a good life change. You know, life change in and of itself is not good or bad. It can actually be both. Um, There are life changes that come on that are so positive, like marriage. But then there's also the dissolution of marriage. And allowing the sins of this world and the pressures that we feel to lead to divorce. The separation of, of, of a one and of a family. That's life-changing. Having kids is life-changing. All of a sudden, two people who enjoy going on vacation together, realizing that vacation is not really vacation anymore, it's just taking care of your kids someplace less convenient. <sighs> For decades. Decades, folks. I can think of a few things that are as life-changing as becoming a parent and realizing that the entire care, body, mind, spirit of another human being is up to you. That's life-changing. I was on staff at a church in North Carolina, my home state, for a number of years when I was a newlywed and into the first five years of our marriage before we had children. And a buddy of mine on staff who was a little bit older, he and his wife were preparing to have their first child. And then a couple of the elders in the church got together and thought, it'll be really fun to have a a dad baby shower. That's weird. Um, So we get together. It's not a shower like decorations and invitations. It's like, hey, we're going to get together at this guy's house. There are no little tiny sandwiches. Um, We did not take cucumbers and pimentos and mix them with mayonnaise and put them on white bread. That's, yeah, whatever. All the guys brought one box of diapers and meat. We cooked it, we ate it, we told jokes and fun stories. Well, the elder responsible for throwing the party, he had a daughter who had recently gotten engaged. So in addition to his box of diapers, he also brought another smaller box, a present. And he gives it to my buddy and he opens it up and it's an empty box with a little note inside. And it says, enjoy your box of diapers. I advise you to change a lot of them. Your wife will like you better. That's true. Wisdom from the ages. Um, And then it said, one day your little girl will grow up and some doofus will ask if he can marry her. You will reluctantly say yes. This box is for you to put your heart inside when she rips it out and leaves you forever. (laughs) (laughs) Having kids is life-changing. Letting them go is also life-changing. Jobs can be life-changing. It's life-changing in a good way when you need it and you get it. It's life-changing in a tough way if you have it and you lose it. 
And we've all experienced a myriad of different types of changes in our lives that have rocked us to the core and made us different. You can use the word or the phrase life change really flippantly and say that um, watching all nine seasons of How I Met Your Mother is life changing. And then you get to the very last episode and you realize that it didn't end up like you hoped it was going to end up. And then all of a sudden you come to the realization that 4,702.5 hours of your life have been spent with nothing to show for it. Um, Or life change can be reserved for only those things that really are significant. Like losing someone that you love, that you deeply care about, that you've journeyed with in life, that you've woken up to for 10, 20, 50, or more years, and you won't wake up to them anymore. Life change comes. And the reason it's life change is because it changes us. There's no bigger life change, no better one for us to speak of, than that of coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because of the gift that he's afforded us in his life and his death and his resurrection, it's called salvation. Second Corinthians, you know, we're not there yet. We're in first Corinthians, but second Corinthians fasting forward um, to 517 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and look, new things have come. And it's true. Becoming a Christian is life-changing. In Christ, you are new. You are different. You are changed. You are holy and wholly complete. Not perfect in your actions, ever, but perfect in your solution for those actions, which is Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. Enter 1 Corinthians 15, and it tells us how that kind of life change is really made possible. It's the resurrection of Jesus. It's by his death that we can be forgiven because he is the payment for our sins that we could not afford. It's by his death that we are forgiven and it's by his resurrection that we are saved. We need both. And it's by that that we can have security and hope because Jesus Christ didn't stay dead. He came back. And it starts in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that's where we land today. If you have a Bible and you want to look in and tune in with me, if you want to check out verses on the screen, or if you want to check out a mobile device that will magically put the words in front of you, we're going to read a lot of verses from a really long chapter that has a great deal to say about resurrection, probably more than what we've discussed and deciphered before, because it's complicated theology. But we'll do our best this morning, starting with verse 1. It says, now brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. Clarity is good. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You were also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believed to no purpose. You see, the Corinthian church is wavering back and forth over a lot of different things, but there is no wavering that is greater and will cost them more than the wavering back and forth between what it is about faith that actually saves a person. What it is about faith in Jesus that actually wrought change in our lives. You see, we have beliefs. Some of them are essential and some of them are not. It's in your worship guide notes this morning, but in our essential beliefs, we must have unity. We live in a world today that presses in with relativity on all sides. And relativism is the disease of accepting no absolute truth and actually going so far as to base one's perceptions on truth solely on human experience and personal feelings. This week, your taking at home invites you to, to, to comb through your Christian beliefs. To comb through the things that you understand to be true and to really decipher whether or not there are things in your life that you will believe regardless of human wisdom and intervention. I hope so. 
And whether there are some things that you believe but that are based on your own personal feelings or experiences, those are likely real as well. But how do you discern the difference of each type of belief and which category it falls? It must align with the teachings of Scripture and with the historical confessions of the church. To be a follower of Jesus, there are some essentials about our faith. First, in order to know Christ, you have to believe in his divine perfection. He not only was from God, but he was God. And he lived a selfless, sacrificial life, doing lots of miracles, but ultimately died a cruel death on a cross and had a victorious resurrection from death. Those are, those are essentials. And without those essentials in our faith, we can't call ourselves Christians. In those essentials, we must have complete and total unity. He goes on to say in verse 3, For I passed on to you as most important, essential, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why according to the scriptures twice? To add emphasis. This is what God was told us was going to happen. This is what the Old Testament prophets and all of the law culminated in the event of Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. We knew this was coming according to the scriptures. It's essential to our faith that we believe this. And he goes on, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Cephas is Peter. Then he appeared to over 500 other brothers at one time, most of whom remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. While the emphasis on all the different appearances of Jesus, well, no one doubted Jesus' life. His miracles were not under investigation. His death was public knowledge. In fact, the manner in which he died was public record, and the news was widespread. But his resurrection and his ascension, they needed proof. They needed eyewitness accounts. And so the Bible gives us many. In John chapter 20, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. In Matthew chapter 28, we learn that he not only appeared to Mary, but to the other women as well. In Luke 24, we know that he appeared to Peter. That's Cephas. Also in Luke 24, and in John 20, he appeared to the other 10 disciples. And in Luke 24, he also appeared to travelers on the road to Emmaus. Back in John 20, he appeared and had a specific encounter with Thomas. You know, he doubted. According to 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to 500 other people at one time, also to James and the other apostles. And in Acts 9, recounted again for us in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Paul, the least likely guy to ever affirm the truth of Christ's return. Wow. Talk about proof. It's one thing to assume that over 500 faithful followers of Jesus Christ could have manufactured and made up the whole thing about his resurrection, but they upped the ante by having Jesus also appear to someone who would have gained a lot if the resurrection were false. Someone who persecuted early Christians. Someone who was an enemy of the church. Let's get that guy on board and see how far we can get this resurrection thing to go. That was Paul. And the truth of his crucifixion and resurrection beliefs are absolute essentials for us. We are not Christians without a firm belief in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for the propitiation and salvation of souls and the resurrection that followed, the victory that he had over death. In our essentials, we must have unity. In our non-essentials, we get liberty. It's a good thing. It means we can agree to disagree. It means we can have dialogue and discussion about Scripture and land on different sides of the fence and different understandings of what the text actually means. Predestination, election, infant baptism, believer's baptism, charismatic gifts, Bible translation. We can get into the weeds about a lot of different things that won't matter this side of eternity, and that's why they're non-essential. In our non-essentials, we can have liberty. And in doing so, getting so caught up in the weeds of those things, we actually forfeit some of the legitimacy we have to be concerned about the big major things. 
in the things that are non-essential parts of our Christian faith, we have to extend grace to one another. We demonstrate Christ that way. We demonstrate liberty. And ultimately, because every single one of our beliefs, essential and non-essential, requires charity and love. Requires us to act like the Christ that we believe in. Paul goes on through this chapter in incredible links to ensure that the Corinthians have a faith that is strong and right. Because you can have a strong faith, but if it's in the wrong thing, forget about it. You can also have a weak faith in the right thing, but at some point in your life, it's probably going to get broken down and taken away from you. Can such a faith save you? James asked that question. Faith must be right and strong. We need to have faith in the right things, and it needs to be a growing, maturing, strengthening faith to last. The way that we encounter that faith, the way that we experience that great gift of salvation, the way that we understand and have knowledge of the resurrection, it must be lined with humility. Paul goes on in verse 10 to say, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not ineffective. You see, faith comes from Christ. It's God's gift. Paul wrote about that in his letter to the Ephesian church. He tells us that it's God's gift to us so that none of us can boast about it. Paul wrote it. He knows it. Our understanding of salvation and resurrection must be lined with humility because we didn't obtain either for ourselves. I didn't give Jesus as a gift for the propitiation of my sins. I didn't cause him to die as a gift for the propitiation of my sins. And I certainly didn't bring him back to life. God did that. Out of an overwhelming love for us and an overwhelming desire to display his glory for all of the world to see, the Corinthian church was wavering on whether or not that human bodily resurrection would be part of their story. They needed a hope in their resurrection. What they really needed was security in their eternity. And in verse 12, Paul starts to give it to them. We can have hope in resurrection It can be guaranteed to us because of Christ's supremacy. He's in charge. Verse 12 says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, There is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. Paul is saying, If there's no resurrection and dead for the rest of us, then why in the world are we out there preaching? Because there can't be life change and there can't be salvation. If there's no resurrection from the dead, Jesus is still dead too. In addition, verse 15, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. In fact, the dead are not raised. Paul is saying if there's no resurrection and Jesus is still dead, then that means that all of the apostles are liars. And if they lied about that, then they probably lied about everything else. So why are we following them? 16, for if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Without a resurrection, no one would be redeemed from sin. Verse 18, therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, fallen asleep means dead. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, fallen asleep in Christ means that you died as a believer in Christ, have also perished. Because without a resurrection, all former believers who have already died were fools who died in vain. Paul's saying to the church, if you don't really believe in resurrection, then you don't believe that Christ came back to life. And if you don't believe that Christ came back to life, you haven't been forgiven. And if you haven't been forgiven, you can't be a Christian. He says, if we have put our hope in Christ only for this life... We should be pitied more than anyone. 
If following Christ only counts for the here and now and doesn't afford for us a glorious eternity with him, why do it? He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. God is the exception. The only thing that Christ doesn't have to sub- that Christ has to submit to is the will and to the glory of his Father. And he willingly does that as a demonstration to us of what it's like to submit to him. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Enough. More than enough. Everything to us. The resurrection is real. And our hope in Christ is secure because he reigns supreme. Death could not hold him. And if he was resurrected, we will be resurrected too. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just to prove he could. It was to prove that God would do the same for those of us who believe and are found in Christ. Sinners, like you and me. The Corinthian believers were not denying Jesus' resurrection. Only their own. The ruling class of Jewish Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection at all. That's why they were so perturbed about the whole Christ thing. So the Corinthian church could have been influenced by that. Most likely, however, they were influenced by Greek philosophy. You see, Greek philosophy was lined with dualism. And dualism says that all matter is bad, evil, and spirit is good. And so people who believed that matter is bad didn't want to have a resurrection body because they knew that that body would be flawed too. So they were happy to say that resurrection could be a spiritual thing, but not a bodily thing. And that doesn't work because when we talk about resurrection, we're talking about a physical body and a spiritual life. Christ's resurrection was both and ours will be as well. Our resurrection and our hope for eternal life is guaranteed by Christ's supremacy. Supremacy. By Christ's resurrection. That's an essential of our faith. It's also guaranteed by church history, by the church's baptism. Verse 29, it says, Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm by the pride in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Paul was risking his life, giving everything that he had for the proclamation of the gospel throughout that region He was arrested, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he almost died. All for what? For the gospel. For a group of people who didn't believe in the resurrection of people, saved sinners, and yet they were spinning their wheels praying for the dead. Paul wasn't advocating praying for the dead. In fact, he didn't teach that in scripture. This is not an opportunity for us to look at the non-biblical practice of doctrine of purgatory or that we should begin praying for dead people so that they can get to a different place. This is an opportunity to look at a group of people with an argument and say, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then why are you spending your time praying for dead people? FYI, there's no such thing as proxy salvation or proxy baptism. 
Most likely for Paul, this referred to the idea of what believer's baptism paints for us as a picture of Christ's life. You see, Christ died and was buried, and then he rose again. And when we go into the waters called baptism, we tell the story of what Jesus did for us. He died and rose again. We also paint a public proclamation picture of what has been wrought in us. The old past and brand new has come. We also foreshadow the future when one day we will physically die and be resurrected to be with Christ again. Baptism paints a picture of that. You know, we have a baptism service, a celebration coming up in a few weeks. It's on August 17th. It's a Sunday night baptism celebration of everything that God's done in the life of our church all summer long. And I wonder how many people are still sitting back and waiting over fear, over anxiety, over confusion about what baptism is and what it really means. I hope that you won't get hung up on whatever that is and miss another opportunity in your life to publicly profess Christ and to teach the story of what he did for us and what has been done in us. I spent last week on the Amazon River. Talk about life change. I have been to or led mission trips on four continents, but I cannot think of an experience for me in ministry that has exceeded that one. Um, It was unbelievable to see the things that God is doing in that community um, through Justice and Mercy International, Amazon, and to, to, to be a part, uh, just a little part of watching God work. Um, it was unbelievable, the ministry opportunities that I was really afforded the chance to be a part of, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, because I was down there with the high school team and our student pastor, Chase Baker, I also got to experience a great deal of education and the local culture, including nature. Um, here's a picture of me holding a caiman that's kind of like a crocodile or an alligator. Um, That's my, I'm terrified, but I'm doing this anyway face. Um, Yeah, I got to hold a sloth, which outside of holding my own children is one of the most precious experiences of my life. That's preschool minister here, Anna Townsend and I, holding sloths. They're so, they're just edible. Oh, they're so sweet. I love them. And Listen, if they, you can have them in the States, but they cost like a month's salary. It's ridiculous. If they did not cost so much money, I would have a sloth and I would name it Rick after the nature boy, Rick Flair. I mean, it's so cute. Like I literally loved it. This is a picture of me holding. Okay. I'm holding a snake in this picture. And if you tell me that I'm not actually the one holding the snake in this picture, that means that you're a person who speaks in technicalities and we can't be friends. Um, I am, that snake is touching me, and that's the first time in my 35.9 years of living that I have ever touched a snake, and I'm pretty, it's a boa constrictor, it could have killed me in a moment, like, and there I am. That's my, um, literally after they took it off, I felt it for an hour, like after, (laughs) I kept, I kept telling Chase, I still feel it on my neck, um, can we make the picture go away, I can't look at it anymore, okay. What the picture doesn't tell you is that the snake had already come out once and everybody who was um, 
brave or stupid, I don't know, had already like held it and touched it and like taken their fun pictures with it and they're all loud and proud and whatever. Um, and then they put the snake away. Um, this is an Amazonian petting zoo. It's a dock next to a shack and you land on it and you don't know why you're there. And then they just start bringing out animals. Um, they had brought the snake out. Everybody had their turn. They put him up and I was in the clear. I didn't have to mess with it. I could have gotten back on the boat and been safe, but I sat there and thought to myself, I'm missing this moment. I've not experienced it in all of its fullness. And, and so I asked the, the translator to get them to bring the snake back out for me to do my best and, and not miss the experience um, and not walk back onto that boat thinking, ah, something's missing. I don't, I don't ever want believer's baptism to be that for someone. I don't want it to be the missing moment from a life lived faithfully in Christ. I don't want fear or anxiety or, or history um, to be a thing that holds someone back from experiencing that joy. Um, talk to someone, talk to me, talk to one of the pastors here and, and figure out what it is that needs to happen for you to take that really important next step of your faith. Um, it tells the story. Let baptism be a photograph of what Christ has done in your life. Let it be the picture of the change that he has brought to you. If you're hanging out waiting for some ideal moment or some lapse in your fear, it may not come. Um, bite the bullet and press forward with the experience. Just try not to look like this when you do. And even if you do, it's okay. Our baptism and baptism of church history not only tells the story of what Christ did, but it gives us hope in his return. He died and came back to life. We die to ourselves and are raised to walk in a new life. We hang on to hope that one day when we do physically die, we'll be raised to walk with him again for all eternity. We also have hope in the resurrection and hope in eternity because of our own testimony. It comes from the way that you live your life. If you really have been changed, it will be noticed, even by you. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection is also supported by our testimony in Christ. If, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 2, you hold to it, or else you believed in vain. Jesus told a parable of some soil, four types, and it was the type of life that received the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And two of those types of soil were rocky ground and ground with thorns in it. And the seed that fell on the rocky ground sprang up quickly, but it had no deep roots, and so it withered away. It was torn away by the things of this world. The thorny ground depicts the one who seemed to receive the word, but whose heart is so full of riches and pleasures and lust that the things of the world take time and attention away from what it means to follow the world, and he ends up having no time for it. The Corinthian believers were asking a great many questions about what it means to be resurrected. And in verse 35 and 36, they say things like, How are the dead raised? And what kind of body will they get? Those kinds of questions were just an indications, just indications of immaturity of faith and no real heart change. Paul was looking at a Corinthian church and saying, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that you guys were rocky soil. I'm afraid that you might be living among the thorns and that your faith will not last. Side note, what if we get to pick our own resurrection bodies? I'm going to be a cross between George Clooney and Jesse Ventura. It'll be like going through the Pottery Barn catalog. You just look and be like, oh, I'll take this body. Oh, oh, I would like to look like this. It's a non-essential. 
It's not important to what we believe about faith. Paul didn't want the Corinthian church to have shallow roots or to be so entrenched with thorns that their faith couldn't grow up to maturity. He wanted them to do what the final verses of this chapter, beginning in verse 55, tell us. To live in light of this. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all that, therefore, because of everything that's been accomplished in the first 57 verses of this chapter, therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Death is not what we think it is. It's not the end. It's also not the beginning. It's a transition. Our life in Christ now is act one. And our life with Christ then will be act two. But only if we remain. Only if our soil was good. Only if our faith grows up to maturity. I will say this next statement with a level of confidence that I cannot possibly communicate. That means that my confidence will not be evident in the way that I say it. But trust me, I believe this and I know this. You cannot lose salvation in Christ. But true salvation in Christ is so much more than a mediocre Christian life that many people have. We cannot lose Christ's faithful gift to us. That would make it a pretty incomplete gift. But we can also be certain that there are many people who think that they have it but don't. Work in this passage, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, is the Greek word ergon, and it's found 169 times in the New Testament. Over 90 of those are translated as work or works, and over 60 are translated as deed or deeds. We do not perform works or deeds to earn salvation. We perform works and deeds as fruit of a real salvation. I'm always really quick to ask And kind of slow to answer the question. Can a person know Christ and live a fruitless, deedless, workless life? Not if the faith was real and the life change happened. Because if so, they would be standing firm in Christ. Anyone can pray a prayer and be dunked in some water. But only someone who has experienced the fullness of Christ's salvation in their life will be completely changed from the inside out and will subsequently live a life that proves it. You can be confident in the resurrection because of your own testimony. Because if you're doing good works in Christ, those aren't from you. They're through you, but not from you. They're from him. And if they're from him, that means he's real. And if he's real, that means he's resurrected. And this word is true. And we're forgiven of the wrong that we do and empowered to do the right that we do. Finally, we can be confident of our hope and our resurrection because of something Paul said in his next letter to the Corinthian church. The power of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he writes, Now it is God who strengthens us with you in Christ and has anointed us. 
He has also sealed us and given us the spirit as a down payment in our hearts. It's God who establishes us. It's God who strengthens us. It's God who saves us. It's God who anoints us and sets us apart for the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. That's Ephesians chapter 2 again. But Paul's saying he set you apart for this. It's like a royal king being set apart to be ruler and authority over a community. I mean, you're being set apart for something significant and something special in Christ. And God did that in you. And he also, it's God who seals us. That's the ancient practice of taking hot wet wax and putting it on an envelope or a document and then sealing it with a special insignet to let everybody know who the author is and who the owner is and what it means. It makes it a official. And I want that kind of ownership of God in my life. And I want it to be obvious to all that I belong to him. And I want that kind of authorship in my life to know that everything that I do is coming from Christ. And I want to represent him well. It's God who gives us the spirit. And when he does, it's a down payment on what will come. Walking with the spirit of God now is a foreshadowing of walking in the presence of God then. Hear me. Walking in the Spirit of God now is a foreshadowing of walking in the presence of God for all eternity. Because we have the Spirit now, we know that we're going to have a body later. That's where our hope in the resurrection comes because the Holy Spirit is real and it guides us and it comforts us and it convicts us and it protects us and we can see and sense and feel the power and the presence of God. Have you experienced salvation? It's life-changing. It comes only from Christ. And are you living in light of a future resurrection? It's life-changing. Here's how you can know the answer to that question. It will be evidenced by your faith in Christ and your works for Christ. It will be evidenced by your faith in Christ and by your works for Christ. Paul knew the danger of promoting works in the life of the early church. He knew that that meant that they would come very close to the slippery slope of thinking that those works earned for them salvation. And he didn't want to contribute to a works-based theology. He promoted them anyway, though. Because he also knew the danger of not communicating to the church a healthy truth of what it means that in Christ, true salvation will be evidenced by obedient, Christ-like living. Without it, we don't have a measurement of whether or not our salvation experience is real. I hope that you have moments to wrestle with that question. And I hope that you have moments to consider what it really means. Whether salvation has been real to you. And whether life change has been made complete in you through Christ. I hope that when you do wrestle with it, what you find is a life that clearly proves Jesus is alive and that you are too. But if not, what would be stopping you from starting right now and experiencing a true life change that only comes from Christ? At the close of the service, I'll be here. I mean, some of our other pastors and ministers and pastoral care team will be present if this is something that you wanted to talk about or pray about or wrestle with, um, please, let's do that. Let's talk about what it means to have firm faith, life-changing firm faith in Christ. I don't think that we're a part of a church or a community where we deny Christ by our words. But I'm off, often very concerned 
that we might deny him by how we live. I don't think we stand up and say we don't believe in the resurrection. But I think sometimes our lives might reflect that. And it's maybe time to ask questions. To figure out whether or not salvation is real. And whether we are walking in a true hope of following him now and living with him forever. At this time, I want to invite men and women who are ushers to come forward. This is a continuation of our worship experience where we bring gifts, tithes and offerings to God, and where we ask him to multiply them and use them for work in this community and around the world so that other people might know the goodness and the hope that we found in Christ. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we sing to you today because we want to tell you that you're awesome and we love you. Holy God, we open your word today and we listen to teaching because we want you to change our lives and make us different. Holy God, we bring you gifts today because we want to illustrate lives with hands open, fully trusting that you are going to provide for us, and fully offering back to you what you deserve because you've been so good to us. We want to give these things freely, God, out of hearts that love you, and desire for you to make your name great in this community. We want these to be an opportunity for your name and your fame to grow, God. And it's in that precious name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.